Well, we began back in July this series in the book of Revelation, and, and my intent was to look at the big ideas. Uh, I, I wanted to identify and to clarify some of the key concepts that are generally accepted by Bible scholars, to cover all the gory details and to debate the debatable issues on this, and to go through all of that would take months and probably years, and uh, that's not what I felt God wanted us to do. Honestly, it's important that we remember that the prophecies of Revelation were meant to encourage believers, uh, those who are under a great deal of persecution and suffering, and encourage us as well. The book was not written to confuse or to create conflict. That's a little important uh, truth you need to remember. It was not written to confuse people, even though sometimes we go, huh? Or to create conflict. I'm sure you've noticed that I've avoided words like pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. I've avoided talking about concepts like pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and ah-millennialism. And some of you are going, huh? What's he talking about? And others are going, yeah, why do we talk about that? Well, I've intentionally avoided those issues, bypassed them, not because I don't have opinions about them, I do, but because when we get focused there, we tend to miss the true purpose of this book. We tend to miss what God really wants us to walk away with. It was written to bless and to shore up those who were struggling. And if you've been struggling, this book was written to bless you and encourage you. It was written to encourage them and us to remain steadfast. In spite of whatever we might be facing on planet Earth, whatever we're going through here, it was written to encourage us to have a different perspective, to have an eternal view. It was also written to remind us that Jesus is coming back someday. And that no matter what it looks like at times, in the end, we win because God is still on the throne. And so it was written to really solidify in our understanding, in our hearts, how great God is. And I hope that you've been personally encouraged and challenged by this amazing book. I know I have been, as I've read it through probably ten times over the last ten weeks. Today we're going to finish the last three chapters of Revelation. And we're going to do so in a slightly different way. And uh, I'll explain that in just a moment. But I, I want us to, uh, to uh, finish at the end of today's service with a little bit more worship. Because worship is one of those key concepts. Twenty times it's mentioned in 22 chapters. And so we'll come back at the end today and finish with some worship. The slightly different way is I'm going to ask uh, Teresa, wherever she is, there she is, our creative team director and my dear wife, Laura, to come up and to join me. And the way we're going to walk through this is they're going to do the reading which again is three chapters and it's quite a bit of it, but uh, to kind of spice it up and to mix it up and to keep you tuned in, uh, they're going to do the reading and then after they read a section, I'll make a few brief comments. Now, I want to do this. Why? Why would I do it this way? This section of Scripture is so powerful. I was tempted just to stand up and read it to you and say, God bless you and men go home. Because it is very encouraging. It is very powerful. Unlike probably any section of Scripture in the New Testament, and certainly in the book of Revelation, this part is encouraging and uplifting. And just hearing it will bless you. Remember back in the very first week in Revelation 1-3, I read this verse to you. It says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. That would be these two today. Thank you. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And listen, and blessed are those who hear it. That would be you. Those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. If you'll allow the Scripture this morning just to speak to you and to encourage you, the Word of God, and to let it lift you up and to bring to you a perspective, I, I know you'll leave here changed. The rest stop info in your outline this morning says this, The greatest hope and joy for a Christ follower is the promise of Jesus' return and our heavenly destination. The greatest promise, the greatest hope that we have as Christians is the promise that Jesus is coming back someday. 
and that we're going to get, we're going to, get to spend eternity forever and ever with Him. Now your outline, it just has the passages that we're going to read. Uh, there's some blank spaces there for you to write whatever notes you like. Well, let's begin this morning in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. At the conclusion of the Battle of Armageddon, which we looked at briefly, it's in Revelation chapter 19, uh, Satan is uh, bound and confined to this bottomless pit. The false prophet and the beast, the Antichrist, are thrown into the lake of fire. And Satan is thrown, though, into this abyss, to this, this bottomless pit. And you need to understand this is only the first stage of his judgment and punishment. He's there for a thousand years and then he's released. Now, the question is, why? Uh, why is he bound up for only a thousand years? Why would God ever loose him again? And the reason is simple, and it's this. Doing so is consistent with the nature of God, who wants people to love him freely and to choose him, to make a choice to follow him. You see, without the presence of evil in the world, Satan's thrown into this abyss for a thousand years. Without his influence, without his activity, without the presence of evil, there really is no other option. There's no other choice for people to choose. And so at the end of this time, all those who are born during the thousand-year reign of Christ will be serving God, but God wants them to have the opportunity to accept or reject Him. He wants their free will, their free choice to follow Him. And so Satan's released um, at the end of this thousand years, and, and those who choose to rebel against God follow Him. We'll read more about that in just a moment. Let's pick it up Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, there are three groups of people mentioned here. Let me just quickly identify them for you. The first group are those given authority to judge. First part of verse 4. Most believe that that refers to all believers throughout the ages who are now going to reign with Christ for this thousand years. They're resurrected, given new bodies, and they're going to reign with Christ for these thousand years. The second group is the latter part of verse 4 and talks about those who have been beheaded for their faith. And these are the people who were martyred during the Great Tribulation that that gave up their life to become followers of Jesus. And again, they're resurrected and they too will reign with Christ for these thousand years. Now the rest of the dead, verse 5, that's referred to there, it talks about those uh, that are not in one of the first two groups. In other words, they are those who died in their sins without ever accepting the saving grace of God. And they are not a part of the first resurrection. Verse 5 says they did not come to life until the thousand years were over. And so those who rejected Jesus at that point are not resurrected at all. The important thing I want you to know here, verse 6, blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. That would be us. We get to be blessed and holy because we get to be a part of that first resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison 
and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, as I mentioned, Satan is released for a brief period of time. And he does, again, what he does best. He deceives people and gathers them in opposition to God. And Gog and Magog, the two uh, groups mentioned here, uh, it's taken from Ezekiel 38 and 39. And most believe that these names refer symbolically to those who will rise up against God. Uh, it might be, you know, that actual nations called Gog and Magog at that point. Uh, it could be some Klingon nations, I guess. I don't know. But uh, it, it, is, it is probably those just that identified symbolically relating back to Ezekiel, those who have rebelled against God. The bottom line here is that God deals with them decisively with fire from the heavens. Just like that, they are nuked. And Satan's final judgment, his final destination, is the lake of fire. He now joins the uh, Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet there, and, and w his followers, where they're tor tormented day and night forever and ever. i got a friend of mine in San Diego who uh, was badly burned in an accident. Uh, over 40% of his body was burned. And uh, I did not know him at that time. I knew him after that took place. But it took months and months of physical uh, of surgery and physical therapy for him to even have partial um, function back in his body. And he told me once that the pain and the suffering that he experienced through that was indescribable. That it was almost more than he could bear at times. And I don't know how many of you have ever burnt yourself, maybe in your finger a little bit, you know. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's painful. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to be torment, tormented with fire day and night forever and ever. But the Bible says that will be the eternal experience of Satan and all those who reject God. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So after Satan's final demise, all those who throughout time have rejected God, those whose names are not found written in the book of life, will be resurrected. And so they'll be brought back to life as well. And this is post the thousand-year period of time. And they'll be judged by Jesus from his great white throne. And that's what's called the second resurrection here. And it says here something interesting. It says that they will be judged according to what they've done. Verse 12 says that. And some believe this implies that there will be different levels of punishment, different degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, we, we don't know for sure. It seems to make sense. There's some other passages in, in Matthew and, and Mark where Jesus spoke about this, and it would indicate perhaps, you know, one of the questions is, well, what if I'm a good person, and how, why would I be sent to hell? Well, because it's not about good or bad. It's about accepting Jesus and His gift of salvation, His grace. But 
you know, surely someone who's evil and, and, and horrible. And, you know, a Hitler will probably suffer more. And that's the logic here. But here's what we do know for sure. Their final destination, all of those who reject God, their final destination is that they too are thrown into the lake of fire. And I know this is a disturbing image if you understand what's happening here. And if you have family members and friends like I do who have yet to give their lives to Jesus and follow Him, this can be a very, very disturbing, very sobering passage of Scripture. And I want to just pause here. I want to hit the pause button just for a moment. And I want to pray. And I want to pray for those in your life, in your family, in your friends, in your world who don't know Jesus yet. Would you bow your heads just for a second? And, and just in this moment, would you just think of those faces, those names, those people in your life, family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, fellow students, people who you are connected with and yet they've not chosen to follow Jesus yet. And just let those names come to your heart as I pray for, for all of us right now. Lord, each and every one of us probably have someone that we care about. Someone in our life that we love deeply who has not yet chosen to embrace your grace and to follow you, to accept your free gift of salvation. And I pray right now for all of those names, probably the hundreds of names, maybe thousands, represented in the relationships that we have. I pray for those who don't know you yet, Lord. And I want to ask you, Jesus, continue to pursue them. Continue to invade their life, to, to, to reveal yourself and your grace and your goodness to them. Lord, I want to ask you to use us to be models of grace and life. Use us, Lord, to speak into their hearts. Use us to remind them that God loves them and that you've chosen them and, and that you invite them to choose you. And where we've despaired, Lord, and wondered if they're ever going to come to know you, would you right now, Jesus, just encourage us to keep on praying, to keep on standing in the gap for them, to keep on interceding for their salvation, that we wouldn't let a day go by, Lord, where we don't lift their names and their hearts to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I also encourage you, and I know personally how easy it is sometimes to kind of give up on people and to not pray as frequently or as often as we probably could or should. And I just want to remind you today, I want to gently encourage you, jot those names down somewhere, and every day bring them to the Lord. Every day ask the Lord to help you be light in their life. Let's read on. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical acts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gate. On the gates were written the names of the twelve apostles, or twelve tribes of of Israel, sorry. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide as high as it, as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurements, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's go to Revelation 22 now, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. I know it's rather lengthy, but what an amazing passage of Scripture. And it's what we have as believers, as Christians, to look forward to. And the angel said in verse 6, These words are trustworthy and true. You can bank on this. You can count on this. This is what it's going to be like. After the final defeat and judgment of all of God's enemies, everything is made new. And there is this merging, in a sense, of heaven and earth. The new city, Jerusalem, comes to the new earth. And there's this merging of heaven and earth. And this, everything, everything we've known is completely changed into something that we can't hardly even imagine. People often ask me what heaven's going to be like. I know it's going to be like Disneyland. Will it be a little boring, like a retirement center? You know, uh, are we going to just float around on clouds and play harps and sunbathe all day or what? And a few people have asked me from time to time, will there be sports in heaven? And, you know, some of you just a little fanatical about that issue have asked me, will there be, you know, my favorite sport in heaven? Well, there's a story about two friends who wondered if there would be baseball in heaven. These guys were baseball fanatics. And they both thought if there wasn't baseball in heaven, it just wouldn't quite be heaven. Anybody else want to? Okay, a few of you, yeah. I mean, how could it be heaven without baseball? Well, one day they made this agreement that whichever one died first, that he would find some way to come back and let the other one know whether there was baseball in the sweet by and by. Sure enough, one of them died, went to heaven, got the scoop, and came back to give his friend the news. He said, well, buddy, I've got some good news and some not-so-good news. The good news is there is baseball in heaven, and it's awesome. And his friend, of course, was thrilled. I mean, he could not imagine what bad news could possibly spoil the moment. Well, his friend continued. He said, well, the bad news is your name is on the roster, and you're scheduled to pitch in Friday night's game. So, <laughs> All right, well, I don't know if there's baseball in heaven or not, but it's a cute story. Here's what we do know. And I'm gonna, I did not have room to put these in your outline. I'm going to run through these like that quickly. But there are ten things in this chunk of passage, the, the chunk of scripture that we read, in this passage that tell us that, that, that we're told about heaven. First, it's brand new place, perfect in every way. It's brand new, perfect. Second, we will always be in the physical presence of God. We have God's Holy Spirit within us, but there's going to be something about being in His presence. No temple, no church building necessary. We will be in His ever-present glory and light, it says. The third thing, and I love this about heaven, there will be no more sorrows, death, crying, or pain. It says in verse uh, 4, chapter 21. No more sorrow, death, crying, or pain. And I want you to think with me just for a moment about your deepest hurt, about your greatest heartache or your biggest struggle. Now, I don't want you to be depressed as you drift there. But I want you to just dial that up. And then I want you to let this truth settle in your soul. It will pass. Whatever your greatest struggle is, your deepest heartache, your deepest hurt, whatever it is, the Bible says the day is coming when we're going to shed these earth suits, we're going to shed this old earth, and everything's going to be new. And so much so 
that every broken heart will be made whole, every broken body will be made perfect, and there never will be again sorrow, death, crying, or pain. The fourth thing we see about heaven is that we'll have free access to the springs of living water. And uh, I don't know exactly what that you know, means. Uh, it sounds good. I love water, especially when I'm working out. And it says this living water is going to be available to us at no cost. The fifth thing is it will be absolutely beautiful beyond description. There's this huge passage from, in chapter 21, verse 10 through 21, that describes for us the, the, uh, the city, the, the, the heaven that we'll be a part of. And it describes these foundations of precious stones. You know, thank you, honey, for reading that part. I never would have got those names right. You know, all those things. But anyhow, so all these precious stones are in the foundations. It describes gates of massive pearls. And don't misunderstand what it says there. It doesn't mean a lot of pearls combined to make this massive gate. It means one massive pearl. Think about the clam that birthed that baby. One massive pearl is the gate. That, that we walk through. It's beautiful. It's unbelievable. And buildings and streets made of pure gold. Beauty beyond description. goes on. It says, the, uh, chapter 22, verse 2, that there will be a tree of life available and that it will sustain and heal the nations. And it, that by nations, that always means people. It's going to heal all peoples. Of, and so there's a sustaining, a healing that comes through this tree of life. Uh, the seventh thing we see is that there are no more curse of any kind. Imagine working in the garden without weeds. Never again will we have to worry about any curse on anything. It's done. It's over. It's history. The eighth thing that we see in this passage in chapter 22, verse 3 and 4, is that we'll experience this amazing time, this amazing worship of the Lamb upon the throne. You see, far more than what we get to experience, all the great things and the beauty that's there, who we get to be with is going to matter even more to us. We get to be with Jesus, with Him forever and ever. And we get to be with one another. The ninth thing that's mentioned, and it's actually mentioned twice in 21.23 and 22.5, that there will be no more darkness of any kind. And I, obviously it would mean physical darkness, no need for the sun or light because God is the light. But I think it would symbolically also mean no spiritual darkness, no emotional darkness, no darkness of any kind, it says. And then the last thing we see that's described for us in this picture of heaven is that we get to reign with Him forever and ever. Lots of discussion over, you know, centuries about what that means and what that looks like and, and what that's going to be. And, and I, you know, we could speculate, you know, I haven't done that much, so I'm not going to do it today. But here's what we do know about reigning. It means that we're going to be engaged in some form of productive work. Isn't that cool? That we're not just hanging out, you know, kind of doing whatever. That there's actually, we are reigning with Christ. All of those other things are true. All of what we get to experience is true. But there's also this active engagement, this productive work that we get. And you can go all the way back to the, you know, to the uh, Genesis, to the, the Garden of Eden, and see a picture there, I think, of probably part of what we'll have, is that Adam and Eve didn't just walk around eating fruit, sometimes the right and sometimes the wrong fruit. They, they, they spent their days actively engaged. They were in the Garden, and there was some productive work that they had to do. Bottom line, here's what we do know. Heaven's awesome. It's awesome. And these ten things just describe for us a glimpse, probably just a, 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 a poor reflection of what we'll really see someday. Let's move on. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. 
And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. There's a lot here in this passage, but let me just make really clear one of the things that we have got to get from this. Jesus himself says here that we should live with an expectation of his return. That we should learn to live with a sense of his imminent arrival at any moment. That it ought to affect everything we do. See, if we live with that kind of expectation, it's going to change the way I live, the way I think, the way I talk. It's going to affect everything I am and everything I do. I want to be ready when Jesus returns. I want to be living in such a way that honors Him. I don't want to uh, find myself in the middle of doing something stupid when Jesus returns. wouldn't be so good. It would become a bummer if Jesus returns and I'm in the middle of an argument with my wife. wouldn't be good if Jesus returns in the midst of that. I'm, I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing or looking at something I shouldn't be looking at or cheating on something or lying. It, those are things I, we need to be aware of. If I live with a daily expectation of His return then I'm going to live with a sense of, God, I want to be honoring you. I'm going to live where I make the most of every opportunity and the, the, to, to be His light in my world. Where I'm not going to miss one chance. I'm going to have my radar up all the time, looking for opportunities to speak grace, to speak love, to speak hope and life, the words of Jesus into the hearts of those around me. Because this could be the last chance I have. This could be the last moment I have. And so I'm, I'm going to make the most of every opportunity. I'm going to live with this awareness and, and, and so doing, I'm going to make the most of every opportunity I have to bless God with my thoughts, with my words, and with my actions. The Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote the epistle, 1 John. And he wrote this in 1 John 2.28. Let me read it to you. He says, And now, dear children, continue in Him. Great phrase. Similar to what Jesus said in John 15, the Gospel. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. Great phrase, continue in Him, in Christ, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. The better we live with the awareness, the understanding, the reality that at any second one or two things could happen. Either Jesus could come home for me or I could go home to be with Him. You know you don't own your next breath, right? Have you figured that one out? And living with, not in fear, not in this terror, not, but living with this reality that my next moment could be in the presence of Jesus is going to change the way I live and it will change the way you live.
One last passage, Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whomever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecies, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Would you read that last verse, that verse 21, out loud with me? Let's read it together. The grace grace of the Lord Lord Jesus Jesus be with with God's God's people. people. Amen. The invitation here is simple and clear. Come. The Spirit of God and His Bride, the church, invites all who will to come. And the cry of our hearts is, Amen. So be it. Let it happen. Yes, Lord. Yes. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to let the band come up. And thank you, ladies, for reading for me today. While the band's coming, and I mentioned we're going to finish a couple more songs of worship, which is a very fitting way to conclude this study in Revelation. But I want to tell you a story about a time, um, seems like thousands of years ago, when I was in high school. Uh, you know, I have these clear memories, but it seems like it was such a long time ago. So somebody told me that means you're getting old. But uh, I was in Southern California in a high school during a time called the Jesus People Movement. And I was what they called the Jesus Freak. Now, it's, it was a time in the early 70s where by the tens of thousands, especially in Southern California, uh, high school students and college students were coming to know Jesus. Uh, drug addicts and street people and hippies were coming to know Jesus. Uh, and great, great things were happening in a whole generation of people that were affected by this season of, of uh, my life. And uh, one of the common words in the Jesus People movement was Maranatha. And uh, Maranatha music, you probably heard of that, and it came out of that whole season. Well, I had this big, brown, earthy belt with this huge buckle, and on the back I had, the, the words were etched in the leather, Maranatha. Now, Maranatha is an Aramaic, Aramaic phrase that occurs only once in the New Testament. It's at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And it's used as a farewell. Paul uses it as a farewell. And he says, Maranatha, because it means the Lord will come or the Lord is coming. And there's a strong similarity from what he said there in 1 Corinthians to what John writes here, you know, uh, in verse 20. Yes, I am coming soon. The Lord is coming. Well, anyhow, I wore this belt all the time. And uh, I, I, all the time, everywhere I went. And I had a guy that was in the locker right above me that was generally stoned. And uh, he, one day as I walked up to my locker, uh, he saw me, you know, and saw it was my belt. And he goes, right on, dude, marijuana, you know. <laughs> and I want Maranatha, Maranatha, it's not marijuana, you know. But, but uh, let's just say I'm guessing he was hooked on something other than phonics at that time. <laughs> but, you know, despite his confusion over what that meant, it really is and was this great word. It was used by the early Christians as a greeting. They would come up and they'd say, Mike, Maranatha. And it was to remind them, hey, the Lord's coming. They would, they would, they would you know, come to, to uh, someone who they knew to be a follower, a Christ follower. And, and with this joy in their heart, with this remembering 
that Jesus who ascended said He'd come back again someday, they would say to each other, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. I want for you, my heart, my prayer for you, has been that you would live with a deeper awareness, a sharper, clear picture, a deeper passion, and a deeper longing for the coming of the Lord. And that the cry of your heart would be, Maranatha, the Lord's coming. He's coming back. And that that would affect the way you live. That it would affect what you do, the words you speak, the way you live with the people in your world, in your sphere of influence. That you would walk out of here today with this deep, deep joy that the day is coming when this broken body this sometimes sinful person, this earth and everything about it is going to be gone. And I'm going to get to spend eternity brand new, whole, in every way with Him. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and I want us to finish in worship. Listen, if you're here today and you've not begun your walk with Jesus during this time, it would be a good time for you to just search your heart and to come to a place where you say, you know, God, I want to go to heaven. I want to know you. I want to embrace your free gift of salvation. And you can begin your walk with him today. But all of us, let's turn our hearts to him and worship. Ushers are going to come. We'll give as we worship. But let's worship some more.